0: How bad is too bad? When the milk has passed its expiration date, and you have none, no other milk in the house, and you want a bowl of cereal, and you sniff it, and it has a faint smell that's not quite right, do you figure your immune system can handle it, and you pour it over the milk anyway and have a bowl of cereal? How bad is too bad? Or you're on vacation at the beach and you pull out the sunscreen and you notice that it's several several years out of date, past its expiration date. Uh, do you figure past the date sunscreen is better than none and spray it on? How bad is too bad? Now, I'm a married man, been so for over 33 years. So, of course, I would answer this by I would pour the milk out, rinse out the carton and throw it in the trash. And I would not use the sunscreen. But when I was an unmarried youth pastor in my early 20s, well... How bad is too bad? Now, when we're talking about milk or when we're talking about sunscreen, it's one thing. But when the topic is people and we ask the question, how bad is is too bad? Can people get past their expiration date spiritually? Well, that's a whole other topic. Today, we're continuing our sermon series, working our way through the book of Acts. We're calling it devoted because the early church was marked by a, an incredible passionate devotion, devotion to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, devotion to the word of God, devotion to each other, devotion to mission, to serving the world and the people around them. And today we're looking at Acts chapter nine with the early church and in particular, a man named Ananias had to respond to this question. How bad is too bad? Let's pick it up in in verse one. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So the last time we saw Saul, actually the first time we met him and the last time we saw him was in Acts chapter seven. If you recall, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Stephen uh, was preaching. He's one of the apostles and he was the church's first martyr. He was speaking boldly about the truth of Jesus, and he confronted a group of, of Jewish religious leaders, and it so enraged them, they pulled him outside and they stoned him on the spot. And we're told that Saul was watching, holding the cloaks of those who were throwing the stones, and it says that he approved. He was, he was glad. So Saul, when we first meet him, he's not a passive bystander who didn't want to get involved. He's not a neutral party. He's a participant. He's an accessory to murder, and willingly and gladly he does so. And we meet him again next in, in Acts chapter nine and, and he hasn't cooled down. He's riled up. In fact, his 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 energy, his passion, his his anger is 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 rile is, is at a whole other level because now he's getting organized about it. And he gets letters authorizing him to persecute Christians, to systematically round up and imprison Christians from Damascus. Now Damascus just FYI was about 125 miles or so from Jerusalem which would be the equivalent of, say, driving to Lawrence, which I did yesterday for a funeral of a, of a friend. So it wasn't you know a huge thing for me to go there and come back in one day. But for Saul, it would have taken several days. And he must have been really motivated. He really wanted to persecute Christians, and he wasn't picky. He wanted to, he wanted to imprison men and women. He's motivated by hate and prejudice. This is a a guy who is doing really bad things. It's systematic. It's premeditated. It's harsh. It's personal. He's a zealot who believes that Christians have to be stamped out. That is his mission in life. Now, we've seen this sort of thing in history, haven't we? Religious groups, ethnic groups, or, or, or racial groups who are targeted for genocide or persecution or discrimination. And it takes a special kind of person not only to to buy into that, to tolerate it, to let it happen and not do anything, but it takes a special kind of person to organize it, to lead it, to mobilize it. That's Saul. And so people would have known his name. Those who opposed the way Christians following Jesus would have rallied around him and given him kudos. And those who were Christian would have understandably feared him. And avoided him. Saul probably, probably liked that. I mean, bullies like it when people are afraid of them. Let's pick it up in verse 3. As Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? asked Saul. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up. And go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. So the bully meets his match. The tables are turned, and Saul is now knocked to the ground. And he discovers that not only is he persecuting Christians, he's persecuting Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting? Jesus doesn't say, hey, leave my followers alone. Stop persecuting them. He says, you have been persecuting me. It's a little like when a a big brother steps in to confront kids who've been bullying his siblings. When you mess with my family, you mess with me. But it's more than that. It's not just Jesus standing up for his disciples, his spiritual family. When Christians are persecuted or rejected or mocked, Jesus is too. Jesus so identifies with us that our rejection and our pain and our hurt is his. He feels it as if it is his because it is his. Let's continue. Verse seven. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless They heard the sound but did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. So, you know, I was thinking about what what was Paul thinking about for those three days? I'm sure he wondered what Jesus meant when he said, you're going to be told what to do. I'm sure it terrified him because he had obviously been wrong about Jesus. And he thought Jesus was some prophet who who attracted a following, but Jesus was dead. Clearly he wasn't. And if Jesus wasn't, then that meant the resurrection happened. And and if the resurrection happened, then Jesus was actually the Son of God. If he was the Son of God, then what he taught was true. And if that was true, then Saul knew he was in big, deep trouble because he had done really bad things. And he had no excuse. And so he must have felt like a man sitting in a prison cell waiting for his sentence after he's been found guilty of of murder, assault and battery, conspiracy to commit murder, etc. He was a bad man who'd been doing bad things, and he knew what he deserved, and he was afraid of what was coming. And he was so disturbed and so distraught that he didn't eat or drink for three days. And then it says in verse 10, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come in and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered. I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on his name, on your name. Now, I understand where Ananias is coming from. I mean, he's skeptical and scared. I mean, Let's just put it in our modern day. Let's say that uh, you have friends in a church in Wichita, aunt and uncle, some cousins. And there's somebody in Wichita who's very public about they mock and they ridicule Christians. And and this person has been harassing them and and giving them trouble and and vandalizing their house and and stalking them. He's, he's He's a bad guy. And now he comes to sign and he's coming to do the same thing. And God tells you, go see him. That's a big ask, isn't it? And not only that, God wants you to be used to bring healing to this person, this person who does not deserve it. So Ananias must have been thinking, OK, God, I know I'm a sinner saved by grace. I know that I'm to love my enemies. I know that I'm to forgive as you've forgiven me. But this guy, this, this guy, he's he's beyond redemption. He's too bad. He's too far gone. He does not deserve your grace. How bad is Too bad apparently for God, Saul wasn't too bad. Saul wasn't irredeemable because God tells Ananias next. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Jerusalem or of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So not only now is, is God going to show Saul grace and restore his sight, he's going to, he's going to elevate him. He's going to give him a, a promotion. He's going to appoint him to be an apostle and a missionary and a preacher and a teacher. And, and Ananias, no doubt, wrestled with this internally, but he obeys. And he trusts God that he knows what he's doing. And Saul regains his sight. He's trusting Jesus. He's baptized. And right away we see that Saul begins to boldly preach the good news about Jesus Christ which shocks people because they know this guy's reputation. They've seen what he's done. They know his bad the, his bad deeds. How could he go from persecuting Christians to just a couple days later preaching about Jesus? Because that's what God does. God specializes in taking those who seem too bad, too far gone and transforming their lives. As long as As a person has breath, they're not irredeemable. Because it's not about deserving it, and it's not about merit, is it? Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 tells us this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Now Saul, who became called Paul after he became apostle Paul, he, he wrote this. He wrote this, and for him it wasn't a a nice theological truth to be taught in a Sunday school class. It wasn't a verse to be memorized. For him it it wasn't, yeah, I'm saved by grace while in reality acting like his works give him merit. No, for, for Paul these were deeply personal, powerful words because he'd experienced this. And a lot of people, probably even himself, after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, thought he was too bad and too far gone. But God's grace. Paul knew he didn't deserve it. Paul knew he didn't earn it. Paul knew what he deserved, and it certainly wasn't grace. But God gave it to him him anyway. And Paul went on to write powerfully and speak powerfully about the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Just a sample. He wrote, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me. He wrote of what God said to him about grace. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He wrote, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not in vain. He wrote, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. He said, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace by which we stand. His only standing, he knew, was the grace of God. Grace. Grace. As bad as he was, as bad as the things he'd done, Paul received grace. And so have you, if you've trusted in Christ. If you believe he died for your sins, if you believe he rose from the dead, so have you. You're not too bad, not too far gone. The sins you've committed in the past, the ones that haunt you, the ones that you are dealing with, the consequences still, they're forgiven and covered by grace. The sins you're struggling with today, the ones that make you feel defeated and condemned, forgiven, covered by grace. Even the ones you will commit in the future, forgiven and covered by grace, because that's what grace does. It does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It pays the debt that we can never, ever pay. And that's what Paul received. That's what gave him such joy. That's what fueled his passion for Jesus and telling others about him. That's what he desperately wanted others to understand and receive and live out was was grace. He wanted people to know that no one is too far gone, too bad that with God, all things are possible and that God's love is not limited. And God, that Jesus death on the cross can cover any sin and that Jesus resurrection means that life is available to all who believe grace, amazing and wondrous grace, grace that pours down on you and me, grace that saves and sets us free grace that avails to you in me, God's grace. That's what we remember when we come to the table, isn't it? We celebrate that God has given us grace through Jesus. And and that should humble us, shouldn't it? That God's grace comes at great expense through the death of Jesus Christ. And that's what should give us confidence that God's grace is not earned and it's not dependent on how good we are or how bad we are. It's dependent on what Jesus has done and how good he is. It's not gained by how good we are. It's not lost by how bad we are. It's grace. And that's what should motivate us to live our lives wholly and passionately for Jesus. Remember that Jesus loves us so much that he forgives us so much that he gives us so much. That's what... That's what grace is about. That's what grace does. That's what that Saul slash Paul knew and believed and experienced in his life. Grace, God's grace. So let's come to the table. Let's celebrate. Let's humble ourselves. Let's confess our sin. Let's express our love and joy. Let's renew our faith as we come and we celebrate grace. Lord, we thank you for the love that you have given us, the grace that you have extended to us through Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that um, this grace uh, is free to all who trust in you. So, Lord, help us to, to know that, to experience it, and may that change our lives, may it bring us joy and passion and energy and, and commitment as it did to, to Paul. We offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.